How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? My name is Alfred Hitchcock, and this is Music to be Murdered By. Welcome to Late Stage Radio. My guest for today is Peltec. You may know him as the dialectician on TikTok. He's a graduate of philosophy. Today we have him here to discuss social media and image. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm very excited. Um, you can call me It's my real name. and You, you already got my, uh, my monikers down, so yeah. Um, yes, sir. All right. So can you introduce yourself for the audience? Yeah, yeah. Um, like you said, I'm a student of philosophy, a recent graduate. Um, you know, studied the the history of philosophy. Um, you know, most of the the traditional thinkers that you would um, that would come to mind when uh, you think about the history of philosophy. I've read through them all, and uh, you know, generally, I'm I'm just a guy who's uh, read you know a lot of Bataille, a lot of Baudrillard, a uh, little bit of Deleuze, and um, you know, I like to talk about it. Um, you know, not, a true postmodern bastard, as you call yourself. Yes, yes, little little you know bastard. You know, I'm I'm just you know someone who's uh very much um sort of consumed in a in reflection on on you know postmodern society and and postmodern themes and and you know think things uh, things that that the postmodern philosophers postmodern theorists are, are worrying about are, are you know generally things that I'm worried about as well. So course and and today we're talking about image i'm more read up on guy de and you mentioned baudrillard right they both have their own little theories on image on de Boer's and its spectacle on your end it's actual image in itself that's right yeah, so that's right. uh for me i'll explain what image is in like the de Boer sense and then i'll throw it to you so you can explain what images on your ends yeah so in thesis for society the spectacle he says spectacle is not a collection of image but a social relation among people mediated by image mm -hmm. i like to look at it as truth pushed onto you by society in doing so creating its own truth already there in that thesis you can see that to board's focus is uh products you know, it's it's products not only uh, as you know in the sense of commodities, products in the sense of identities, in the sense of uh, you know institutions. You know, the the industry that we make of spectacles, um, and you know it's it's interesting. Yeah, well, Guy Debord was a Marxist philosopher, so his whole thing is we and ourselves have become a commodity. You know, that that goes on Marx as well, but he says that we become commodities through society and so creating this own truth, this own spectacle. But I want to ask you, what is image and how does it form in a Baudrillardian sense, I guess? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think we, we could talk about, right, the, the definition and, and how we understand Baudrillard and, and what he means by, by image, right, when he utters this term. It's a term that he uses a lot in a lot of different uh, tenses, in a lot of different ways throughout his, his work, but 
you know, since we're sort of jumping off from from Debord, I think it would be interesting to to ask, you know, what's different about Debord and and Baudrillard. Um, you know, they're uh, operating certainly right in a, a, a similar you know philosophical trajectory. You know, Baudrillard is writing Simulacra and Simulation, uh, I believe, just a few years after. Uh, the Society of the Spectacle. And, you know, he engages Debord's terminology in that text as well, you know, commenting on the spectacle. He uses this term. Um, but nevertheless, there's, there's some nuances, which I think we can uh, kind of elaborate on in order to, to sort of hash out their differences, right? So Debord, as I take it, and, you know, it's been uh, some time since I've engaged with him properly. And so, you know, forgive me if I... Um, you know, speak in, uh, you know, indecorous terms, but Debord to me seems focused on modes of production, like I said, right? Debord is focused mostly on the industry, which we make of spectacles, the products, the identities, which emerge from a society of the spectacle. He goes into that on his comments of the Society of the Spectacle that comes out at least a few decades after it. Original Society of the Spectacle was written in the 60s, surprisingly, given that like how relevant it is today you know so he goes in the comments of the society of the spectacle quote i showed what the modern spectacle was already in essence the autocratic reign of the market economy which had ascended to an irresponsible sovereignty and the totality of new techniques of government that accomplished this reign end quote so he sort of rehashes his own definition in that sense but i don't know if that can aid you in what you wanted to say about baudrillard surely surely right because Baudrillard is, is going to expand on this, you know, on precisely this idea, right? And in many ways, we could say that he's, he's going to synthesize all of this, right? If Debord is looking only at the modes of production of the spectacle and at sort of the uh, political and perhaps, you know, more broadly, the, the social effects of the spectacle, right? Baudrillard is looking at the metaphysical challenge, which is posed by the emergence of a spectacular society. He's looking at the, the convergence of industry, identity, and production. And his goal is slightly different, right? It's a little bit more metaphysical. Debord, being focused on modes of production, is you know, enacting this uh, situationist uh, ethic, right? Which is, of course, the, the group which he's a part of, which I'm sure you know, maybe we could talk a little bit about. Um, yeah, well, the the group formed out of post World War II consumerism, from what I from what I know, they saw the rise of consumerism in France at least, and created this own little clique called the Situationist International, where they build off these sort of ideas. Debord being like the the head of the group, right? And it's it's about creating situations, right? And and creating situations which can challenge, uh, you know hegemonic institutions, powerful institutions, corporations, you know, generally, once again, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a form of Marxism, right? But uh, Baudrillard is, is really focused on reality. He's focused on the way that all of these things, which Debord uh, posits as making up the society of the spectacle, converge. Baudrillard is focused on their convergence, right? And ultimately, the way that the convergence of all of these things leaves 
reality behind. The way that the spectacle or the image, right, which we'll talk about, comes to really remove truth from society. How, how it allows truth to, to sort of escape society. You know, and this is, this is you, know, uh, you know, it's an epistemological claim. It's also a metaphysical claim, right? And Debord is, is pointing out and sort of trying to distinguish the world of the spectacle from something which came before it, right? Like, it, in some sense, we might say he's a little bit nostalgic, you know. Whereas with Baudrillard, the idea is that the spectacle has consumed reality itself, that we've become so seduced by images that uh, these images have come to replace the real entirely. And most crucially, Baudrillard will say that we've reached a point where we can no longer distinguish between reality and hyperreality, or in, in Debord's terms, right, between the pre-spectacular and the, the spectacular society. We've become so saturated by the convergences of the spectacles that now we've pretty much lost the means to even comprehend the difference between spectacle and reality. Yeah, and we're both Zizek fans for like the most part. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. Zizek's his, great. Um, you know, he's he's uh, certainly a professional, I think. You know, he gets a lot of, of a lot of slack on the internet, but he really knows what he's talking about. In his Pervert's Guide to Ideology, he speaks on John Carpenter's They Live. I believe, if I remember from the film, he says that the glasses represent class consciousness in a sense. Mm. But we can look at it like the glasses show the truth behind the image. You know what I mean? Insofar being class conscious, or like if we can look at it through Baudrillard or Debord's way. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right, actually. Um, you know, I remember that actually not from the, the text, but from uh, Zizek's film, The, the uh, Pervert's Guide. You know, that scene where the person takes, puts the glasses on and they see, you know, a, a dollar bill and it says, this is your God. Or Yeah, he, or we can look at it through the advertising. Right. John Nada is the character we're speaking of. So he puts on the glasses, he's a, tr a trip to whichever country, some, some island in the Bahamas. And it says, reproduce, or another advertiser says, consume, obey, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, and, and, and Baudrillard's going to be um, a little bit different from Zizek. Zizek is, is certainly, um, certainly has a lot of similarities with Baudrillard, and I, I don't think he would like to admit that. I think he certainly wouldn't admit that. I don't know if he would even admit that he's he's read Baudrillard, but, you know, his notion of virtuality and, uh, you know, the, the reality of the virtual and, and all of these things, very very similar to, um, you know, what Baudrillard means by image. I think we can get into hyper-reality through image. Yeah, you definitely. Know, what's, what's, Baudrillard, what's Baudrillard's take on reality and hyper-reality? So I guess, yeah, like, like you said, to get there, we might want to talk about, um, you know, image. What is image, you know, for Baudrillard? Um, the, the key, really, to understanding the image in Baudrillard's work is that uh, the image is not representational. In other words, the image does not represent reality or, or the real. It only presents itself as the image. So uh, in 1984, Baudrillard gives a lecture which is called uh, The Evil Demon of Images. 
Um, the title is a, a sort of a subtle gesture at the history of philosophy, right? And in particular at uh, Descartes' famous uh, thought experiment about the evil demon, right? It's a, his, his motive um, sort of moving beyond skepticism. But what, what Baudrillard uh, says in this lecture is that what is so diabolical about the image is that they appear to conform to reality when they really do not, right? He says that it is exactly, precisely, really, it's precisely when the image appears to be the most truthful and the most in conformity to reality that the image is at its most uh, diabolical, right? And for Baudrillard, in the early 1980s, right, is when he's writing, you know, uh, when he's given this lecture, actually, in particular. Um, he, he just thinks there's, there's a naive uh, belief in, in realism of the image. And, and you know, a naive uh, belief in a sort of fidelity between the image and reality. He thinks that people too often believed that images were representational, right? And... In this lecture, he kind of picks up on uh, some of his earlier work, in particular the, the Procession of Simulacra, which is uh, an earlier essay of his, which is uh, in the book uh, Simulacra and Simulation. And, uh, you know, also in that book, he looks at the, the Coppola film, right, Apocalypse Now. He says that there is a, you know, that if there is a reality anywhere, that it's in the production and the presentation of the film. Or, you know, at the very least, of films like this, which sort of demonstrate how uh, simulacra precedes reality and also how simulacra comes to constitute reality, right? Apocalypse Now is, uh, for Baudrillard, an instance of the way that war has become, uh, you know, cinematographic, televisual, his idea is that images contaminate reality. The image in Apocalypse Now models the reality of Vietnam, right? And the, the reason that Baudrillard really invokes this term, image, is because he wants to argue for the, the primacy that the image has taken over reality. Like I said, he thinks there was still a lot too much naivety about images. He thinks that we did not yet grasp the non-representational nature of the image. We didn't grasp that images are not representations of reality and that they really only tend to contaminate reality. And you know, there's, there's some stuff, you know, we can also get into on um, fatal strategies and, and things like that, but let's, let's, um, let's keep going here. Yeah. And through this new reality of images insofar it makes hyper real you know truth is devoid of image you can say image masks truth you know whatever truth means these days i guess we're in a post-truth society but right but this attempt to break the image is never taken well you know that's where you get people like assange and baudrillard writes this and at least to my knowledge, in the Gulf War didn't happen, you know, where he says the media presence on the ground with the troops during the Gulf War 
was there to show the might and the power of the American military, right? To some extent, right? Because there's there's three essays in that book. There's uh, the Gulf War will not happen. There's the Gulf War uh, is not happening. And then there's the Gulf War, or no, it's it's Gulf War will not take place. The Gulf War is not taking place. And then the Gulf War did not take place. And first one's written before, second one during, third one after. Each one makes a sort of a different argument. Um, and the image and the image and the spectacle of it is this insanely powerful army going to liberate this nation, going to help save Kuwait in that case and like take down the reign of Saddam, their first attempt of it, at least. And one of the good examples of this image that you gave me before was the American hostage. Yeah. How he's represented in Iraqi media and American media. Can you give a brief explanation of that? Yeah, very briefly, right? So Baudrillard, um, you know, asks us to, to take a look at this moment from the Iraq war when Saddam takes an American hostage on television, okay? And there's, there's really two things going on here for Baudrillard, right? The first is that there is here an example par excellence of the... Uh, impossibility of truth in images, right? The very same image, an identical image, right, of this humiliated um, American soldier who's, you know, beaten and, and presented on television, you know, in Iraq is taken as a kind of galvanizing uh, image, right? It's something that, that rallies people around Saddam's strength. You know, he's challenging the West, right? He's, he's um, you know, standing up to the bullies. You know, on the other hand, in the United States, this is completely incommensurate with the image of the United States military, which was being constructed consistently using the weapon stockpile since World War II, right? The image of the United States soldier as being uncompromisingly strong, you know, as always the most powerful, right? When someone in the and United States... always the most good. Right. That's always well, the most there's, just. There's, of course, moral dimensions as well. But, yeah. you know, the, um, the point is that, you know, the very same image is responsible for, for two radically different receptions. Right. And this, this sort of points out the, the futility of trying to find an affinity between image and truth. Right. The second thing, which is fascinating, another fascinating point, right, and, and sort of a little bit more of a practical point that Baudrillard makes is that, you know, Baudrillard sees Saddam as a kind of hysteric despot. He sees Saddam as someone who was kind of poking a bear with a stick, knowing that he couldn't really stand up to the, to the bear, you know. And so what Baudrillard says is that this, this war, the Gulf War, was fought for the image of the United States. It wasn't fought for any real military, um, you know, against a real military adversary. There was no real threat. But the threat that was posed was a threat to the image of the United States. When you take an American soldier on television, humiliated, degraded, it contradicts the, you know, once again, the image of the United States soldier. 
that the U.S. has to maintain, right? And Baudrillard says that there's an incredible burden that's placed on the United States by nature of the weapons stockpile, which is amassed since World War II. That with the weapons stockpile comes the responsibility of policing the global informational order. Baudrillard sees the Gulf War as a, an informational war, as an informational event, more than it was a real event, right? And this is what he means when he says the Gulf War did not take place. It means that it wasn't a real war. It was a war that was fought informationally, right? It was a yeah. war that was fought because and of information and also for information. Post 9-11, you see this whole image of the American military, this whole spectacle of the U.S. military accelerate and become insanely propagandized and huge and oh we have to go out and fight for quote-unquote democracy and freedom and when breaking the image you get when attempting to break the image you get people like assange with his collateral with wikileaks's collateral murder leak you know showing that they're not there for helping people per se and which which uh, which exact uh, WikiLeak are you talking about? Which which uh, sort of event? Collateral murder was the video that really popped off the whole American war crimes thing. At least in the West, it really showed all oh, these people are these people by the U.S. military. It's showing that they're not as precise as they're like made to be. So in the video, that you have a helicopter over a few Iraqi civilians plus two. Reuters journalists and in it you hear the commander go and shoot them they get they get massacred they get they get murked then like the American soldiers are laughing you hear them laugh a school bus comes by and like I don't know how it is from where you are but in the Arab world the school buses are like these little Volkswagen buses you know yeah, what I mean yeah, right yeah so a school bus goes in and without really thinking after they like save these Reuters journalists, they put them in the van to drive off. Without really giving it a second thought, the Americans open fire on it. They kill children, they kill the driver, et cetera, et cetera. You know? And it's this break in image of the American military. Because mm -hmm. it shows that these guys aren't really the good guys. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's showing that, oh, they won't hesitate to murder civilians. Right. And Well, it's yeah. it's... Of course, uh, to to kind of bring it into Baudrillard's terms, it is a um, it's an image which points out the diabolical nature of images. It's an image which which you know Baudrillard uses this term duped, right? That's something he uses in the in the Gulf War book. He says that you know we're duped by images. We're duped by the image of of you know U.S. hegemony, for example, right? And and the you know, not just U.S. hegemony in a, in a uh, you know, a critical sense like we might, you know, use. In a sense that that is, you know, driven by the military, right? Like in the sense of uh, powerful, once again, precise, like you said, you know, you know moral, uh, moral virtue signaling and, and things like this, right? And something like this comes out, yes, it, it once again, it points out the, the, uh, the, the, the way that images conceal rather than demonstrate truth, right? And, you know, we might even say, you know, that this image, right, is also something that we can question. You know, this is also something, this is also still just an image. 
I bring it up because it is an extreme example, but I know you and I are both interested in studying war. Yeah, yeah. I don't think so much war tactics, but the meaning and like the combatants. We can see we can see it through social media, which is what I really want to like focus in on and critique. You know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. What are some of the images and spectacles we see throughout social media? You know, first of all, right, social media is, um, it's new, you know, relatively new, right? There is really no social media until, uh, you know, there was some social media in the early internet, but really no social media like as we know it today until uh, Facebook, you know. But Baudrillard has been picking up on this, uh, once again, this naivety for a really long time you know, since the 80s, we can see the trend towards social media well before social media was ever created. We could see the trend towards uh, hyper-reality on social media before social media is ever even around. Like you ask what kind of uh, spectacles do we see on social media? I mean, it's, uh, it's countless, right? It's, it's a new thing every week. That's, that's also part of the problem, right? There's an excess of information, you know, we, we have so many images and, and so many possible interpretations of these images that any one interpretation can't be better than another. The truth escapes us completely, right? You want to talk maybe about one example that from recent history, you know, that, that shocked a lot of people, I think, is the, the uh, you know, the event on... January 6th, the QAnon uh, loyalists going to the Capitol building. You, you see a similar, similar scenario to what you see with the American soldier during the Gulf War. What is that? Well, you know, you, you remember the, the guy with the, um, the raccoon hat and like the, the tattoos. Yes, yeah, so the, the QAnon shaman. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Yeah. Like, take that image, for example, right? On, on the one hand, a QAnon true believer sees this and, you know, they get excited. This is a, a reason to celebrate, you know, <laughs> this is a, something exciting and great. And then you have, you know, t- take a, a, you know, average liberal and they're kind of horrified by this, you know, the same exact image, right? Two completely different responses. They, the image doesn't need to be distorted, right? That's, that's also another thing about fake news is that the... All news is fake, <laughs> right? There is there is no real news. You know, at, at least you know if we're thinking in in Baudrillardian, um, you know, terms, especially post nine eleven because of the birth of the twenty four hour news cycle. Like I am, I'm a journalist, and, and you know what I mean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you can see the bastardization the bastardization of truth, you know, through the twenty four hour news cycle because there always has to be action. You know, mm-hmm. John Stewart explains it. John Stewart, the comedian, he explains it very well. Where it's like, these twenty-four hour cycles are only made for one thing and one thing only. That's nine eleven. You yeah. know, but now that we have, especially in America, it's very polarized. The news, the, the news channels there, where you have CNN on one side and it's the, the liberal, point of view, and then you got Fox and that's the conservative, point of view. Especially now, then you have recent developments like 
one American network, which is just off the rails right wing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And in America, there's no real left wing as I see it. Like that has power. So, <laughs> yeah. so there's yeah. that. But it's this false truth that gets spread very rapidly on social media, especially with these like new garbage infographics. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. There's a joke. Oh, man. Yeah, there's a joke. If it was around in 2003, you'd have infographics going like. Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. Why isn't anyone talking about this? <laughs> Stuff yeah. like that. Right. You know, you know and um, social media is a little bit uh, unique, right? Because what it does is it gives, a, it gives power to any individual to make some kind of a remark or, or uh, some kind can, you know, feel as though they've contributed something to uh, a broader discourse, whether it's on politics, it's on gender, it's on race, sexuality, you know, whatever the, the theme might be, you know, even philosophy, right? Like we see, you know, so many people commenting on, on philosophy on the internet, right? And you know, so many bad takes, so many, a lot of good takes as well. A lot of people doing really good work on the internet philosophy, but a lot of, a lot of really bad stuff as well. Uh, and, and, you know, what comes with this is really a, a very, very clear reinforcement of the excess of information. Once again, having so much information that we cannot possibly sift through it. We cannot possibly find meaning within it, right? There's, there's no images with justification or with meaning. There are only images, right? And this, this kind of actually is a good place where we can kind of talk about images in terms of, in terms of their employment or, or really, uh, or in other words, their, their participation in what Baudrillard would call a, a fatal strategy which is contrasted with a, a banal strategy, right? So Can you the, explain banal strategy? Right. So the banal strategy refers to this notion that images can be exchanged for a true reality or for meaning. You know, in a, in a banal strategy, we take the image as a means to an end and not as a sort of metaphysical transcendent end in itself. Whereas... The fatal strategy is the strategy which lacks this, uh, you know, finality. There's, there's no destiny for the image. The image is not a, a means to an end and sort of persists only in reference to itself and to other images. You know, there's, once again, no images with justification, no images with meaning. There are only images, you know. And for Baudrillard, it's, it's a question of the enjoyment of images for their own sake, independent of any real meaning. You know, he thinks that images replace reality, which entails a process uh, wherein the, the truth uh, escapes any possible recognition. You know, the, the, the key idea, I think, and I've said this before, key idea, I think, is replacement. A lot of people on a first read through Baudrillard, or, or at least, you know, in, in discussions I've had, conversations I've had, they, they see Baudrillard as sort of... Um, proposing this theory of hyperreality as being something that's outside of reality, like that's something else, right? There's reality and then there's hyperreality. But what Baudrillard's really saying is that we can't distinguish the two. That hyperreality has actually replaced reality completely. That, that we've become entrenched in the order of appearances. 
when it comes to social media at least like social media whether one agrees or not it's not real you know what i mean all social media is just people giving themselves a new reality in hopes of achieving a higher spot in society the spectacle is the false portrayal of oneself in this context you know what i mean absolutely right yeah you know i can kind of speak to this because i make make content right on tiktok for example you know and you know I'm very careful with the images that I present on TikTok. I get, you know, <laughs> you know, a bunch of hate comments from, you know, it's probably it's probably often, uh, you know, kids who make the mistake of taking me seriously. You know, what they don't realize is that every image that's posted is is very carefully developed with this sort of Baudrillardian stance in mind. Like, this is how actually I was able to get a following in the first place. Like, it's always been an experiment for me. It's always been a sort of testing of Baudrillard's hypothesis. It's been an experiment in what, in what Baudrillard would call the seduction of the image, right? I present images which I think will elicit something within my viewers, whatever it might be, right? I hardly share my actual view. I hardly even share the view of, of anyone else. But what I do is, is I present a diabolical image. The biggest controversy was pr promoting Kojev, wasn't it? Yeah. One of the biggest that, controversies for you. That's right, yeah. You know, I promoted Kojev. Um, and funny story, like I, I you know, I, I picked up Kojev a couple years ago when I was reading Bataille. And, um, you know, I... I uh, was doing some research on Bataille and, you know, Bataille's influences, you know, I was reading through, uh, especially looking at Bataille's reading of Hegel and, and how, how Bataille responds to Hegel, um, which comes up mostly in, in the, the second volume of The Accursed Share. And, you know, just through research, I, I came up on, on Kojev. And, you know, I, I read through Kojev's, uh, you know, introduction to the reading of Hegel, lectures on, on the phenomenology, and I, I found it to be a great book. Now, is what Kojev says a little bit different from what Hegel says? Yeah, I, I think so. But I think he provides a very, very interesting, very, very fascinating approach to Hegel. And so when people ask me, you know, how do I get into Hegel? Right, there's really only two answers I could give. It would be either Hippolyte or, or Kojev, especially for, you know, people who are interested in French uh, theory. Right, and so, so I recommend Kojev, and I got so much hate. Because all the Foucauldians, maybe even some of the Deleuzeans, right? They want they want to hear Hippolyte because Hippolyte gives the the reading that you know that kind of confirms their their biases, right? But what's interesting about this, right, is that I think it was just a couple weeks earlier on Why Theory, Todd McGowan comes out and says that Kojev is arguably the most important philosopher of the 20th century. And it's, it's just funny, right? Because you see, once again, like the image can elicit something that's just so, uh, you know, so contestable. You know what I'm saying? One of your first things that like that I saw, one of the biggest controversies that I saw at the start was your burning of Discipline and Punish by Foucault. Yeah. And I know that got a, a bit of like backlash you got you got quite a bit of hate from the Foucauldians and uh, yeah, yeah you know and it's it's just uh once again it goes back to what I'm saying like I'm I'm really pointing out that this is just an image 
It's not real. Mm -hmm. It's an image of a book burning, right? Did the book burn? Yes, absolutely. But you didn't see it burn. Yeah, you only saw the portrayal of it. You only saw the end result of you throwing it in the fire. you, You saw the image of that. Of course. Right, And that was enough. You know what I'm saying? That was enough to to get you going, right? And that's exactly what the media does. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what I, social media does, right? And we could talk about it in so many different contexts, right? Whatever niche you're in on social media, this happens, right? You know what you want to talk about? About hustle, hustle social media, right? About entrepreneurial uh, fetishizing uh, social media, right? You know... <laughs> the 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 uh the course course salesman of the internet right uh, it's the worst thing to come out of it i believe because like oh and i wrote about this on the plain spectacle medium you can read my article on it about how capitalism stole our lives hustle culture is such garbage because what do you have you have people in like the middle of ohio that flood on any like stock or bitcoin trend then they post a picture of a lion and go like i'm nord man or beast I'm a lion and I don't let shit stand in my way, you know, and it's all this garbage. We're lied into this thirst of desiring work. You know what I mean? Sure. Relaxation is seen as lazy in late capitalism. You know, sure. we, we always need to be doing something. Yeah. But you know, what's what's problematic about it for me is that it's the, the presentation of uh, entrepreneurial ventures as though it's some, some kind of easy and, and immediate, uh, you know, instant thing, right? You see a, like a, 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 an entrepreneur guy who's trying to sell his course and will say, oh, I made, you know, 80 grand in, in six months or, you know, in a month, right? You could do it and too. And it's on TikTok a lot. It's on yeah. TikTok. Oh, yeah. There's on TikTok, one right? A one-minute like, video. They're like, start a website and then do this and then do this, right? Yeah, learn to code. And it's it's totally manipulative because why? Because the the generation of individuals who have been raised on social media are very, very susceptible to thinking th- thinking things through in terms of immediate gratification. They're very, very ready to uh, indulge in, in a vision of immediacy, right? When you tell them mm-hmm. you can do this very quickly, it almost, uh, you know, it seduces them very easily because that's that's almost the structure of social media, isn't it? Right? You make a post and you immediately get response you immediately get gratification likes you might post the worst take ever on tiktok right with you know a big wall of text and you get 500 likes and all of a sudden you think you're some kind of a genius you know what i'm saying you get this immediate gratification you get an immediate assimilation into a group right same thing on instagram and it's this this structure of immediacy which is is exactly what these these hustle culture accounts are preying on, right? They're preying on this almost psychological, right? Maybe even even you know neurobiological vulnerability that we have because of social media, right? Mm-hmm. It's the the fact that it's a lot of young people. You know what I mean? People our age, younger, and like it's very impressionable. That's the thing. So when you get someone going like, "Oh, I don't eat lunch. I invest in shit," you know. <laughs> Here, here's my $400 course on how you can be as rich as I am. Yeah, like don't sleep. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's garbage. It's it's utter trash. And then you're you're promoted with this all like, oh, self-made billionaire things, which is not real. Most of these self-made billionaires came from, 
I don't want to use the word, but like a point of privilege. You feel me? Sure, sure. Bezos Bezos was thrown three hundred thousand dollars to start Amazon by his parents. Elon Musk came off the backs of a lithium mine. You know. Yeah. And it's all just this lie to make you go into this to be a slave to this sort of culture. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. You and must that's, work, that's, you must hustle, you, you can't know, but, you but, can't relax. But here's the thing about it is like these these accounts aren't coming from the billionaires. They're coming from, you know, mid-level entrepreneurs who are who are trying to take money from the lower level entrepreneurs. Yeah, but they use these billionaires to promote it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They say, yeah. Oh, you wanna be that, like Bezos, you wanna from. be like, you know, yeah. this and that gets back to the image, right? Of course. They'll they'll post a picture of Bezos. They'll be like, you want to be like this guy? You got to buy my course because I know how he thinks. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's very seductive, like we've already sort of touched on, but it's also very, very exploitative, right? Because here you have someone who claims to have a successful business, claims to want to teach people how to do it, but then asks for their money in order to, to, to teach them, right? And I understand, sure. There's value in what they say, maybe, right? There's value in philosophy, right? I don't, I don't ask for money for, for people to, to teach them about ideas or to talk about ideas with them. You know what I'm saying? It's, there is an expo- exploitation going on in those, in, those, um, in those practices, you know? And yeah. it's, it's not uh, an exploitation of the, the you know, in the big you know, structural Marxist sense, it's, it's a micro exploitation. It's an exploitation of, of someone who knows how to use images, someone who knows how to present themselves as an image onto people who don't, you know, it's, it's that simple. And, and it works for so many people, right? There's so many millionaires who have been made on courses on selling courses. And, and I don't want to, um, like, I don't like to knock anyone's hustle, right? I think anybody should be able to work on whatever they want. But when it comes to images and when it comes to the use of images in order to achieve that, right? We need to have some kind of a reservation. You know, this is what I find to be so, so, um, so annoying about uh, someone like Mark Zuckerberg. Right. Every time he's asked about the negatives of his platform, about the negatives of artificial intelligence, he will never admit that there even is such a thing. The only response he'll ever give that he's ever given, whether you're looking at the when he was pressed in in federal court, whether you're looking at his his interviews, his conversations with someone like, uh, you know, Harari, he just, he just won't admit it. They'll say, well, what do you think about the the negative effects of, of, you know, dataism and, uh, and artificial intelligence? He'll say, well, well, what about the positive effect? He he won't acknowledge the problem. You know what I'm saying? And this is, you know, this is, this is, um, is problematic. You know, it's perverse. Yeah. It's 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 just it it's um it's anti-intellectual, you know, and and you present the, the, it's presented as though it's intellectual, right? Because it's like oh no no like look look at AI look at what we could do, right? This is productive. This is great, right? Real intellectualism is not not just gonna look at one side. You need to look at both sides. 
you need to look at both sides and you have to have clash. You have to have a meaningful clash, right? And, and, and he foregoes that, right? And that's, that's part of the problem, right? And it's, it's hard to challenge things when they don't get acknowledged. There needs to be some kind of a recognition before there's any, even any legitimacy lent to the problems, right? Have you seen the Grimes video that's been making waves across TikTok? these yeah, past few days yeah yeah it was, it was i have a prop i have a yeah i have a proposition for the communists suffering succotash type shit yeah what yeah i like, saw that yeah hey guys let, let's let's use ai because uh my husband is the is mr capitalist and i have a right to talk to you leftists about this yeah you know what i mean yeah she and grimes in her own self is like a interesting character because she grew up in from my knowledge she grew up in like a more bourgeois area in bc than moved and wanted to live the quote-unquote aesthetic life of pro- of poverty in Montreal or something, from what I heard. You know what I mean? Yeah, I actually I actually don't know much about um, about Grimes as an individual, to be honest, to be completely yeah. honest. Um, yeah, neither do I. Like, honestly, I just saw this <laughs> online. Yeah. Someone, someone I, I think she makes video. great music. I think she really does make great music. She's very creative. Um you know, and I I don't know how how much of an intellectual she is. You know, it gets into an interesting question with you know artificial intelligence and and stuff like that. But it's a little bit little bit um, a little bit peripheral to the topic of social media, right? AI and and um, you know luxury communism, automated communism, things like this. This is a you know this is a big big topic. Of course, I just wanted to ask because like the whole AI thing. And of course it's, it's Musk's wife that's going on. And look, look at Musk, look at what Musk does with social media. He's gained a cult following through this shit posting on Twitter. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's and, like the recent thing was come rocket. Yeah. You know, it, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's weird and it, it's stupid. <laughs> I don't know. Like it, he's and, but it works for him really image. well, right? It works for him of really course, well. Of course. He's able to manipulate markets. Well, you don't have any other billionaire that has this sort of, deranged fan base as as uh elon musk mm. where if you talk shit about him then you have an army of these simps going at you going like hey he came here with nothing mm-hmm. like this is their false notion of self-made it's like oh he came here with nothing and look at this empire he built as if he didn't buy tesla from these other two people mm-hmm. and know? what about what about bots right what about mm. the what about bots and and how bots can contribute to uh, hyper reality, right? Like I remember one thing, for example, that was actually quite surprising. That was last summer. Uh, it was one of it was actually an experience of of botting that that I really will never forget. Um, it was like in over the summer, um, you know, during the um, during the riots, during the demonstrations, you know, uh, in L.A. There was of course a lot of lot of a uh, lot of heat. And, um, man, you know, at at one point I remember being on Twitter and like, sometimes, you know, I'll go on Twitter, especially when there's events going on like that. Right. I'll go on Twitter. I'll go on latest, you know, and I'll just be like refreshing on like a word, right. I'll search in a word, you know, and I had seen like a couple tweets that were saying like, Oh, you know, Beverly Hills, West Hollywood, like be there, be there. Right. You know, at first it was just a couple tweets, and then, very quickly, 
hundreds, and then thousands. And then I'm looking at these accounts. Most of them are bots. But then the real people start saying the same thing after the bots, after it gets up onto the trending page, then guess what? Then it becomes real, right? And then you see there, once again, you can't distinguish between the hyper-reality and the reality because they're so intermingled at this point, right? The bots can simulate a riot and create a real riot. It's interesting. It's scary, but it's interesting. I know for AI, at least, like, social media modeling platforms are using AIs instead of humans now, Mm -hmm. you know? And I'm pretty sure a lot of people have seen it where these AI bots are modeling with, I think, more more or less streetwear. Mm. But they've taken the place of models, you know what I mean, of, like, humans. Mm -hmm. And I saw a video from some modeling agency while researching for this pod where someone was talking about his friend who's had who has like cysts all over his all over his body and he says i just wanted to rip my skin off i don't want these at the end he came to the realization that if i remember correctly he says truth is only skin deep truth is only the outer layer Mm -hmm. you know what i mean Mm -hmm. but it's it's strange (laughs) like for lack of a better term because what is it now now you can have this malleable like piece of code in front of you that you can create anything with it instead of warping and making its own image warping the reality of the model you can just create a bunch of ones and zeros that are your perfect human your perfect uh, muse like you could mm-hmm. say mm-hmm. right you know, it's uh, a lot of a lot of acceleration of, of really trends. Also, once again, you know, trends that we've that we've seen the basis of the bases of for a really long time. Right. First, it's Photoshop. And now it's completely fake model. You know, first, it's. Uh, having some kind of a, a hyperstitional fabulated identity on uh, Twitter, on, on, you know, Instagram, wherever it is, right? You use, you, you have this pseudonym, you have a, a character, right? It's something that I, that I do, right? With, with both my TikTok, with my Twitter, right? My TikTok, you, what you see is not me, right? What you see is the character. You see, you know, Deleuze has this, this concept of the, the conceptual persona, Right, like Plato invented Socrates. And that's what's radical about Plato. It's not it's not the dialogues that are radical about Plato. It's the fact that he invents Socrates in order to accomplish those dialogues. Right? And this is what we what we do on the internet today, right? All the meme accounts, all of the uh anonymous uh you know, podcasters, philosophers who write and and contribute ideas to the internet anonymously. Now we have artificial intelligence getting to a point where you can you can put a, a fake face to the fake name, right? And I, I could see it getting to such a, a you know, an, a, a radical extent that, you know, eventually we, we might be duped for a very long time 
about about whether or not a person's real, right? Like you see it on catfish, of course, in a, uh, a sort of primitive way. But imagine when the artificial intelligence is good enough to just create novel individuals in hundreds of different situations and, you know, uh, you could simulate voice, you could simulate uh, video, you could simulate photo, right? It, it's going to reach a point of excess. You know, we always, always trend towards that excess, right? Always trend towards the excess of information, the excess of reality, right? Like Baudrillard says, we, we can either get more false than false or we can get more real than real. Mm-hmm. That's all we, that's all we can do. Yeah. AI is going into the journalism world where you have bots like uh, GPT-3, I think the name is. Mm-hmm. You can give it a few prompts and then it creates this whole article for you mm. you know mm. writing being, ais like, right yeah yeah mm. me being a journalist it's scary you know what i mean because how long until they just scrap the actual writer and bring in a few people just to write prompts for these bots right you know there was there was once a, a librarian who um who i talked to at one point on the internet who's good with um good with like our machine learning ais and stuff and uh, he told me he had uh, basically plugged a thousand plateaus into uh, machine learning AI. And he asked the, the AI to like write, you know, based on the language it learned from a thousand plateaus. And what, what comes out of it is pretty funny. It was like something to the end of like Deleuze asks Guattari like about bananas and then <laughs> Guattari is like one or infinitely many bananas. And then it's just like something completely irrelevant. So I think those have a long way to go before they can achieve real uh, radical ways of thinking or, or um, you know, at the very least to do philosophy, right? And with journalism, right, it's a question of... of how good of journalism are you doing? Can you be replaced by an AI? Mm-hmm. Right? There's going to be journalists who can't be. And, and, and maybe it reaches an absolute point where pretty much any profession can be done better by an AI, right? I wouldn't be skeptical of that, right? I, if you read Bostrom, right, there's so many, so many scenarios for, for how that could go down, right? But there's, there's going to be sort of, I think, some kind of a value in humanism, uh, whether it's, mm-hmm. it's a nostalgic value or whether it's, it's a, a value that's going to be synthesized with post-human and transhuman ways of thinking. It's tough to, tough to sort of tease out. But, you know, on social media, what, what's, what's so interesting is that, you know, it's, it's, it's dictated by artificial intelligence, right? You're fed... Uh, things that you want to see and and the amount of data that's collected is uh, profound it's it's much more than you know it's much more than i think you know the average person can even comprehend you know and this is actually what's this is exactly what's so dangerous about it right you hear people often say like oh you know the algorithm probably knows you better than you know yourself and that that's probably true but, but where does it get dangerous, right? It gets dangerous in the mechanism that this amount of data provides 
for control. When you have so much data on an individual that you can uh, almost predict their behavior and predict their proclivities, their interests, you know, not only their interests in the superficial sense, but their interests in the sense of how do they make decisions? What's their search for lost intimacy? You know, what's, what's keeping them alive? You can start to nudge people in sort of into paths. You know, this is sort of what Deleuze gets at in his postscript on the societies of control, right? We, we, get, we get, you know, nudged into predeterminate, preordinate paths where discipline becomes less relevant because you're not acting out of order because you're already set on a path. You're already guided by the algorithm instead of sort of negatively reinforcing your behavior through discipline. You're just controlled. You're fully predictable. Microsoft patented an AI that will theoretically create a copy of someone's dead relative or someone or a dead loved one. Did you they? Know, they did. And wow. it's, it's, it's scary. Cause like one, it's not real. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit about closure. It's not real. It's just, it hurts the person. I believe you feel me mm-hmm. where you're talking to this bot as if it was your friend, your dad, your cousin, so on and so forth who passed, mm-hmm. you know, but it's through like the mass collection of data. Yeah. That's unbelievable. To- like, I feel like that'll just be such a failure <laughs> because I mean, you already, ha- you already have something like that. I, you, I'm pretty sure you've seen the video where somewhere out East through virtual reality, a mother got to see her dead daughter. They strapped the headset on and she got to play with her dead daughter, but it's all through virtual reality, Mm. you know? So at what point does it become hurtful to society? And once again, you see the increasing reliance of uh, individuals on simulation, fake things, real things are completely, uh, completely, indistinguishable from fake things on account of the fact that fake things and the real things have have really come together. I think the meld between real and fake comes from influencers. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. you can see it on, on Instagram, at least like the fitness world. You have this, you have a super fit dude who's obviously been training for God knows how many years. And he's like, Hey guys, I have this protein powder that I'm sponsored by. If you want to look as good, if you want to look as good as I do, then you should take this, this protein powder, (laughs) you know, and it lies you into buying this product that you don't need, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and And that's marketing in general, right? Marketing marketing is all about, it's all about, right. It's about spectacle. It's about, it's about seduction. It's about seduction. It's about creating an image that seduces seduces one to Mm -hmm. do what it seduces them to buy Mm -hmm. right but it's even outside this where it's like you'll post like in the realms of influencers at least it's like they'll post a video of them in a new shirt and shit going like hey guys this will change your life if you smell like garbage all day then buy this shirt and then you'll never you'll smell like flowers and whatnot for an example you know what i mean Mm -hmm. but marketers use use social media for a lot of evil shit but 
influencers really are the smell of spectacular society and image, I believe. Absolutely, right? Yeah. It's the par excellence example of that, right? Of course. Influencers are, are, um, are images, <laughs> you know, and mm -hmm. they're the sort of apotheosis of, of uh, images, right? And, and in particular of the replacement function, right, that I talk about, right? The, the influencer replaces the images of themselves, which are presented on social media, with the reality of themselves in the eye of the viewer, right? Mm -hmm. You, you know, and, and, and this is what I mean, right? When, and this is what Baudrillard means when he says that there's a naivety, right? This isn't only in the eighties thing, right? This, we, we, you know, what, what Baudrillard prescribed unto the people of the 1980s, right? This idea that everybody is, uh, seeing an affinity between the image and reality. We see images as being representational, right? Going back to my, uh, you know, content on the internet, right? I present images under a certain like hypothesis, under a certain, uh, you know, experimental uh, mode. And surely enough, it, it works, you know, most of the time it works. And so what we see is this naivety, which Baudrillard prescribes, is still very forceful today, right? I might even argue that we've become increasingly naive. That we have not gotten past this affinity of the image and reality at all. And that really we've we've only entrenched ourselves further into that, you know, ironic status. Right? And and influencers are, once again, the par excellence example of that. Right? Yeah. That's why influencers are able to garner so much uh, so many followers and so many so many so much influence. Precisely because they're so good at replacing reality with images. Debor would talk about it through like banality, where the spectacle creates boredom that you must consume to replace it. Mm. You know, mm. but like I feel like this book is super influential today, given that it was written in '67. You know, what I mean, it was written in the '60s, but it holds so much truth today that it's unreal. You feel me? Mm -hmm. So, like in thesis sixty of Society of the Spectacle, he talks about celebrity. He says, "quote." The celebrity, the spectacular representation of a living human being, embodies his banality by embodying the image of a possible role. Being a star means specializing in the seemingly lived. The star is the object of identification with the shallow seeming life that has, that has to compensate for the fragmented productive spec specialization which are actually lived. Mm. Celebrities exist to act out various styles of living and viewing society unfettered, free to express themselves globally. They embody the inaccessible result of social labor by dramatizing it, by dramatizing its byproducts magically projected above it as its goal, power and vacations, decisions and consumption, which are the beginning and end of an undiscussed process, end quote. Hmm. You know? Right. I like this idea that sort of at the, the start of this thesis where he says that um, c celebrities are specialists of apparent life, right? Apparent life, the life that is apparent to us, the, the life of appearances, right? He says stars are superficial objects that mm -hmm. individuals can identify with and uh, compensate for the the banality and the the fragmented uh 
fragmented specializations in which they 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 prevail right i believe that's that's you know sort of consistent with with uh what the board what the board means here right it's it's I, I like this idea of the apparent the apparent life right yeah because that's that's what um you know especially lifestyle influencers right is that not exactly what they're in the business of doing right in the business of creating an appearance of life yeah and it's more so in the this new alternative wave of influencers right but the, you know there's so many there's and once again we get back to the excess right you have you have right-wing influencers you have left-wing influencers you have influencers who don't who, who are not political at all yeah right you have influencers who talk about music talk about fashion right it's infinite you know mm-hmm. but what's consistent across all of them is once again this very crucial function of images replacing reality or what in Baudrillard's terms or what but what DeBoer would say apparent life it's these lifestyle ones that are really fascinating to study I think you know I think well, it saturates social, saturates yeah, us, yeah. right of course in terms of social media where it's like we both live in major cities so we know what it's what it's like you get these videos that are like a day in the life in New York, a day in the life in Los Angeles, in Toronto, so on and so forth. And they only show the positives of it. It's like, hey, I get to walk out and see, smell this fresh air. I get to go to my favorite coffee shop, buy myself a flower, go home, do all this shit. Mm. We know it's not the case. Mm. You got to go out and you got to get yelled at by some pre- by some sidewalk preacher mm-hmm. about how you're going to hell, mm-hmm. for an example. But, you know what's interesting about that is it, it mirrors... Um, the the propagandist um, function of early Hollywood films, right? Because in, in early Hollywood films, and I'm I'm talking mostly uh, post Great Depression. So actually, even even during the Great Depression and before that, the films were radical. I think a lot more radical than they were today. Like silent films, right? They silent films are are very loud. <laughs> If you if you watch a you watch a Charlie Chaplin the the social commentary there it's 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 there and it's it's not like uh, you know it's not like latent how it is in films today. One of, one of his one of his big ones that I really like where it breaks this this like realm in the silent film was The Great Dictator. Mm, you know? Yes, I haven't seen sure. that one, but I, I really want. That's where Buddy. he uh, he like he like. Um, Dude, come on! You gotta watch it. He goes like melodrama on uh, like uh, like uh, yeah. fascism, right? Well, he takes he's mistaken for Hitler. Yeah. I, <laughs> I gotta you check know, that one he out. He goes out. Yeah. The the final speech hits is very loud because mm. he's like, like, I haven't watched it in a few years, so forgive me, but one of his phrasing is machine men, ah. in talking about fascism, you know. Uh huh. So you create this fake being that its only goal in life is do as you're told. Uh, Hollywood is very good with that. Yes. You being in the States, like, and, I'm well, pretty yeah, sure. And, you know, I mean, and, I'm, I'm in L.A. most of the time. And, yeah. you know, I've also I've it's also already in hell, isn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it is uh, par excellence. It's, you know, Baudrillard visited here and, and he had a lot to say. I recommend anybody to to you know, read Baudrillard's reflections on, uh, California. Um, but 
you know, the, the point I was trying to make about the mirror between, um, you know, day in the life videos and, uh, early, um, you know, Hollywood propaganda, right? Take a film like Casablanca, for example, which is produced by Warner brothers. Um, you know, at the time, you know, prior to world war two and during world war two, certainly the government, the federal government had a very, very strong involvement in Hollywood. Um, there was there was bureaus who were dedicated to judging films for their propagandistic qualities. Like these bureaus would be in touch with the Hollywood studios, like Warner Brothers, which I'll talk a little bit more about. But they would be in touch with the studios, and they would ask before making before they would make a film. Right? They would ask, "Is this film going to help the United States win the war? Is this film?" pro-war and this is documented i can i can send you first account documents of this and you could put them in the show notes this is this is real information the the head of warner brothers at the time mr warner i got the files right here brother oh i got the files dude <laughs> i got the files like you know this is this is something historians picked up on historians of hollywood you know they they, they know this stuff but you know this is something that that kind of shocks me but right like here's the thing is the studio still needed to make money so they can't just come out with some crude propaganda. It has to be it has to be entertaining at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right? And then it goes back to what you're saying about these day in the life videos. It has to be entertaining. So they can't include the bad. But what happens by nature of that process is it becomes a certain form of propaganda. Like in Casablanca, right? It's a very entertaining film. It's a film that we still watch today for the entertainment it provides. But at the time the bureaus who would judge films for their propagandistic qualities said that this was a, a textbook example of pro-war propaganda, right? Because you have Rick, who's this uh, American character who's in a, a, a Nazi-occupied um, uh, Nazi-occupied area in, in um, French Tunisia, right? And um, you know, originally this, this film was a play and it was anti-Nazi, but it was not pro-war. It was adapted by this guy named Koch, this writer named Koch. It was adapted to be pro-war. And you know, what's, what's the pro-war theme? You know, there's many of them, right? It, it comes up throughout the film, but really there's, there's one big message right at the end where, and I, I won't spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it, but there's uh, a big sacrifice. You know, Rick makes a sacrifice at the end of the film, mm-hmm. right? And this this mm-hmm. is the message of World War II, right? You have to make a sacrifice to beat the Nazis, right? You have to sacrifice yourself. You have to be like Rick. Going back to the influencer thing, right? It's the same thing. You have to entertain. And this is what's so dangerous about 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 it. Because when you're being entertained, you don't realize that you're being influenced. You don't realize that there's propaganda going on when it's also simultaneously entertaining. But the military presence hasn't stopped and filled. Oh, of course not. Right. The military intervention into media is definitely, definitely has not stopped. And I don't think it will stop. But what'll be what'll be interesting, I think, and also very on topic for us, right, is, is to see how involved they are in social media today. Right, like on Theorygram and Twitter, like we we often make jokes um, about CIA operatives 
you know, or FBI operatives like uh, infiltrating like Deleuze discussions and, and things like this, right? It, it's a joke now, but it, it'll be interesting to see how much truth there is to that, right? Like is, is the CIA, FBI looking at, at the internet? Are they, are they infiltrating social media circles? Right. The U.S. Army definitely is, because if you if you've been online enough, then you see like their whole push towards gamers and like weebs and shit. Oh yeah, <laughs> one of their, right, right, right. One one tweet that was making moves was uh, they just tweeted uwu, u w u, like on some conference or whatever. They had a whole Twitch channel. I don't know if they still have it, but they did. And if anyone mentioned war crimes, they just block the person. Well, that's direct involvement, right? Like that's coming from their account, right? But like, what about the anonymity, right? That we kind of touched on earlier. What about fabulation? What about hyperstition? What about CIA, FBI operatives who are posing as, you know, normal anonymous users in order to get Mm -hmm. into different circles and and you know different groups and different different um you know thought circles really if anything they're they'll be the one to do it because they have the means to you know people like me and you or others we can be as anonymous as we want but we're never really untrackable right but they can be like we can yeah yeah because they have the means but like i can drop my voice pitch it down make it all anonymous ask you know, we are legion, expect us type shit. Yeah. You but saw I'm, that today, uh, right? Um, They came after Musk. came after Elon. Yeah. Super excited to see what comes out of that. Yeah. Super excited. Oh, yeah. But, but that's the thing. We can be as anonymous as we can be, but we're never really off the grid in terms of the online bandwidth. Yeah. You know, it's... You know, I, I really like... Um, I really like that aspect, I think, actually, of the, at least of the, you know, uh, you know, you want to call it the intellectual side of Instagram, Twitter, or or the pseudo intellectual side of Instagram, Twitter, you know, whatever, whatever floats your boat. I like that everybody has this um, conceptual persona. I like that, that, that people, um, you know, kind of create a, a fabulated identity right there's this concept of fabulation it's in Deleuze it's in um in what is philosophy in the second half in the essay called percept affect and concept right and it's it's a it's definitely a minor idea there but it's it's one that um that I really like because it's you know fabulation right the idea of fabulation is to relate something as true relate something that is false as true, right? And, and that's really what we do with these, you know, um, hyperstitional or, or fabulated identities on the internet, right? Like my TikTok, once again, for example, right? It's fabulation. It's, it's a presentation. It's a, an image, you know, and, and it's an image with no destiny. It's a fatal image. It's an image in itself. And, mm-hmm. you know, Hundreds of people partake in this kind of activity, right? This this preservation of false identity, right? But it becomes real, right? To a certain extent, it becomes real in the sense that it's a it's an image which has a reality of its own. You know, whether it's anonymous or not, the the fact remains that it's it's about once again it's about imagery and it's about seduction. It's interesting, it's terrifying but interesting. 
Yeah. You know, it's Baudrillard gets a lot of, um, I think a lot of slack on the internet and it, it's partially justified, but it's also, uh, I think largely misled really. Um, and it's Baudrillard's, I think a lot more simple than, um, than he lets on. Right, like really, really, what is what's going on in Baudrillard? If you want to break it down to a, an extremely reductive, perhaps even reductive to a point of being distasteful, but it's just uh, materialism and uh, showing the way that material analysis can be um, just as easily conceived of as analysis of simulation. He's the one that inspired the Matrix, no? Sure, yeah, yeah. But he hated that. He hated the movie. You want to know what he said, actually? He said, the Matrix is the... <laughs> he said, the Matrix is the movie that the Matrix would have made about itself. Of course, <laughs> of course he said that. What a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but whether he, he likes it or not, his whole theory of simulation inspired, to an extent, what we can see today through like this whole Matrix of online presence. Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense yeah and you know that's actually getting at another thing is like uh when you say simulation today you get um you get a connotation of, of something like bostrom like are we living in a computer simulation right his, his famous essay who's bostrom nick bostrom right nick bostrom is a, a philosopher um at the uh, future of humanity institute at oxford um he writes um, you know, a number of essays, uh, mostly focused on post-humanism. He has a, a famous book, which is called Superintelligence, which is about the future of, of artificial intelligence. And, um, you know, the, you know, uses probability theory to sort of analyze, uh, the, the trajectory of technology and, and the, the speed at which we might achieve artificial intelligence and, you know, to analyze the, scenarios which come with it and so on but he he has an essay um uh, which is called are, are we living in a computer simulation or maybe it's do we live in a computer simulation um where he basically basically poses a theory but poses a, a kind of thought experiment he asks um you know if eventually we have enough computing power to where we could run what he calls an ancestor simulation um, which is basically a, a detailed simulation of our history. Um, it says, if we eventually reach this point where we have the computing power to do this, and we turn on an ancestor simulation, that at that point, it immediately becomes uh, one in billions chance that we are not in a computer simulation. So why? Because if we reach that point where we have that computing power and we actually do turn on an ancestor simulation, then who's to say that we're the first ones to do it? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. But Baudrillard is different, right? Baudrillard's simulation is, is, is a, more of a symbolic semiotic meaning. He's not talking about computers, right? And that's also the big problem with the Matrix because it's about a real computer simulation. That's not what Baudrillard's getting at at all. He's getting at the simulations that go on up here in, in our heads, right? Mm -hmm. He's getting at the, the way that we simulate things with, with images, right? 
commodity of mind. Right. And, and it's, it's, it's different, right? Because when you see the average, you know, general, general population sees simulacra and simulation, they think, oh, it's, it's, it's about computer simulations, right? But it, it's not what the book is about. Uh, that's not what Baudrillard's concept of simulation is about either. You know, it has nothing to do with computers. Has to do with images. Has to do with you know maybe maybe digitalization and things like that, right? It can be applied in those areas. That that's it's, it's different concepts, totally different ideas of what simulation means. Um, but uh, they they get conflated, I think, a lot, and it's 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 uh, it's just kind of funny. Thoreau, you can see the relation of Debord and Baudrillard's thought of image. And you can 100% relate them to what we perceive as real today mm. through this bastardized version of reality that is social media. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good point to wrap up. <laughs> Where can the people find you? Oh, man. Uh, so I'm on I'm on Instagram at Peltech, P-E-L-T-E-C-H. I'm on Twitter, TikTok, at The Dialectician. Um, those are my socials. I got couple things coming down the pipe so you know just check me out and you can find me at twitter at underscore no fly with two y's and on instagram at late stage radio thank you for coming on thanks for having me man late stage radio initiated we love to see it yes sir maybe the trouble isn't with the joke maybe it's with you Sorry, sir, we have no cream. Can it be without milk? <laughs>